Hey, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 1. You know, it's funny, every time I sit down, like, to do a lesson, I always end up standing up anyway, but that's all right. We'll see how long it lasts. So Mark chapter 1. So um, if you've been with us over the past several months, I guess, uh, we've been really trudging through the book of Romans. Um, CYP is just about done with Romans. Uh, CYP is our college young professionals. They meet on Sunday nights. Uh, they are, um, I think, the last week of Romans, um, which is awesome, sad, but awesome. Uh, but for, for students, we're kind of breaking it up throughout the year. Um, so we just kind of finished uh, a little bit of Romans. So now we're going to start a new series. Uh, we were going to start it last week, but we didn't uh, get a chance to do that. So we are starting a new series in the book of Mark. So um, just to kind of give you a little bit of a background, a little bit of context to the book of Mark, right? So um, when I say, just to kind of make sure that we're on the same page, when I say like Mark is one of the Gospels, what do I mean? Sweet. Okay, bro, tato chip, br- dropping some knowledge. Okay, yeah, so one of the first uh, four books of the New Testament. No, Gospels, four Gospels. That's okay. That's okay. I'll tell you this. The book of Acts is a narrative that's, it's, it's kind of like one of the Gospels, but it's not. But that's okay. No, there's, there are four Gospels. Okay, what's up? Tells the story of Jesus, right? So um, what's up? Yeah, so there are, man, now, now we're getting, like, now we're getting, getting crazy here. Uh, big seminary words. Yeah, there are three synoptic Gospels, um, which, there you go, trivia, if you want. All right, what, you know what? We're here. What are the three synoptic Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, good job. Uh, okay, what's up? Oh, man, thank you for that. Sunday school answer. No, I'm kidding. Uh, you're right. You're right. You're right. Uh, and I'm actually going to talk about that, so good job. Uh, you know what? You know what, Corbin? You just take my notes. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but all right, so yeah, we're in the book of Mark. Um, when I, so when I say one of the Gospels, it is one of the first four books of the New Testament, and it is one of the story. It is where one of the four books where we have the stories of the life of Jesus while he was on this earth. So I'm just going to give you a little bit of information about it, right? So the book, the, the Gospel of Mark, or the book of Mark, focuses on the actions of Jesus more than the teachings of Jesus, right? So what you'll find when you read the Gospels is that all of them have specific themes to them, right? So the book, the Gospel of Mark, really focuses on the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, right? That he is the, the, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, different things like that. Um, and a good hint as to why that is the case, or how you can kind of tell the difference, is that what does Matthew open with? What? A genealogy, right? It opens with a genealogy. Now, uh, there is two genealogies of Jesus in the Gospels, um, but which, who does... Matthew's genealogy start with Miguel Portnoy. Well, who does Matthew's genealogy begin with? Abraham, bang. Whose genealogy does Luke's begin with? Adam, man, bruh. I just, uh, John doesn't have one, uh, but 
right, so, so here's the reason I say this, all right? So uh, Matthew focuses on the fact that Jesus is the fulfilled uh, promise to Abraham. Mark is really focusing on the actions in the life of Jesus. Um, it is the shortest of all four Gospels, it, and it is extremely fast-paced, all right? So the Jesus that you will see in the Gospel of Mark is a Jesus that is on a mission. He is focused. He's going. The, the word immediately uh, shows up 40 times in the Gospel of Mark. Right. So and you'll see this where basically immediately he went and did this immediately. He went and did that. So most scholars believe that Mark was written to a Roman audience. Okay, that's a good thing to know Uh, that most people believe that most scholars believe that Mark was written to a Roman audience. And the reason is because there's a lot of textual clues in there. But one reason is that Mark is clearly see, I told you the chair wouldn't last. All right. Uh, Mark is clearly writing to a non Jewish audience. Okay, he's clearly writing to an audience of people that are unfamiliar with Judaism, and you can tell this by a lot of the ways that he writes and explains certain things. Because of this, it is often the first book to be translated into a new language. Okay, so when you talk about Bible translations, uh, the Gospel of Mark is the most translated book in the entire world. Now you know. Part of that is because it is the shortest, but also is that it it is the one that is the easiest to understand for someone who is not coming from a Jewish background. Okay, it is very straightforward. It's one of the easiest to understand. So when I'm talking to somebody and they're like, hey, I want to read my Bible. Where do I start? Um, If they're relatively new to Christianity or or whatever, I'll typically tell them the gospel of Mark is a great place to start. And I'll tell you this. If anyone ever asks you, uh, one of the four gospels is always a good start because it's always good to start with Jesus. Um, That's a good start starting place. But the gospel of Mark, um, gospel of Mark is typically where I will tell somebody to begin. All right. So Mark. Here's another fun fact for you. Mark was not one of the 12 disciples, right? But he does show up several times in the book of Acts. If you have read the book of Acts, you'll see that Mark shows up several times in there. But what's interesting, though, is that Mark captures a lot of the miracles of Jesus in incredible detail. And part of the reason, so it's like, how is it that he was not one of the disciples, but he can record these events in such detail? And that is because most scholars believe that the source of Mark's gospel is actually the disciple Peter. Right. So uh, many people have even said that the gospel of Mark is basically the gospel, according to Peter, um, written down by Mark. And there are a lot of so a lot of early church fathers attribute a very close relationship between Mark and Peter. Peter even references Mark as his spiritual son in First Peter five thirteen. Right. So uh, it's, that's just something to kind of keep in mind, like the basically the lens of the author here. But it is also the earliest of all the gospel accounts. It is the earliest of all the gospel accounts. It was the first one to be written, and it was written approximately around 50 to 60 A.D., which is around 20 to 30 years after the ascension of Jesus. Now, um, some people liked uh, some critiques, uh, critiques, some critics, hey, uh, some critics like to uh, try and point out reasons why the gospels are unreliable, so to speak. And one reason that they'll uh, talk about is the uh, the distance or the, the range in time, right, from the time that it was written down to the time that the events actually occurred. And they say it can't be reliable. Well, just to give a little bit of perspective, all right, you didn't ask for it, but I'm going to give it to you, all right? A little bit of perspective. The second most manuscripts that we have of a historical event would be the history of the Trojan War as documented by Homer in the Iliad, okay? Now you know. Right? There are 1,757 manuscripts that are dated 400 years from the events themselves. Right? The earliest known manuscripts that we have of the Trojan War are written down 400 years after the event itself. 
Now, if we were to say about the New Testament, the New Testament, including the Gospel of Mark, has approximately 66,000 manuscripts ranging from 20 to 150 years after the events. Okay? Um, so it is not even close, the, uh, the reliability that we have of the Gospels. Uh, so the Gospel of Mark and all other New Testament writings are incredibly reliable and are all written and or documented by eyewitness accounts of all, of, of all the things that were happening and explained in them. And they were written during the lifetimes of those eyewitnesses. And they were in circulation during the lifetime of those witnesses. So when we're studying Mark, we are reading eyewitness accounts written within the lifetime of those who experienced them and often were written by the exact ones that experienced them. You with me? Boom. Now we got all the boring, not boring, it's not boring. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Uh, we got all like the, you know, the academic stuff kind of taken care of, right? We understand the Gospel of Mark. We understand, some, all right, how do we approach it? What are the, what's kind of the historical context that we have here, so to speak? All right. Now, when we are studying the Gospels, it is important that we do so with a lot of care and attention. Right? You with me? It's important that we do so with a lot of care and attention. So we live in a day, and, it, and, and you probably have recognized this, we live in a day where people are constantly seeking to redefine Jesus. Right? We're living in a day and age where people are se- constantly seeking to redefine Jesus, change who he is, right? They, they will make bold claims, right? They'll say that the, church, that the early church did not view Jesus as the way that he is taught today. Some of you have probably heard things like this, especially uh, by people that I, I like to call, uh, you know, TikTok theologians, um, right? They, 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 they have a social media account, and they just speak with, you know, mysterious music in the background, and you're like, yo, this person knows what they're talking about, Uh Right, they just kind of say things, uh, but they say like, "All right, well, the early church didn't necessarily view Jesus the way that Christians today view Jesus." Uh, there's actually a trend over the past several years, which is actually the the search for the historical Jesus. I don't know if you've heard about this, all right? Which is honestly just garbage. Um, but there are many things that people will say about Jesus that are clearly not correct. For instance, they will say that Jesus never claimed to be God. Have you ever heard that? People say Jesus never claimed to be God. Uh, this is often uh, a, a rebuttal of people of who are who are of different faiths, right? Um, so if you speak to somebody who uh, is a practicing uh, Muslim, they will say that Jesus never claimed to be God, um, which is not correct. Um, but they, they will say Jesus never claimed to be God, or others will say that the disciples never j- considered Jesus to be God, but merely someone who was sent from God. And it was after uh, Jesus' ascension and all these different things that people started to take things uh, out of context and take things farther than what Jesus intended. Uh, people will also say that the gospel accounts contradict themselves uh, or that Jesus never spoke about particular sins. People will say that Jesus never spoke about homosexuality or other hot topics that are in the culture today. Uh, so people will make a lot of claims about Jesus. And here's the question, is we need to be able to know, all right, how do I know what is true and what is not? Right? You can talk about a lot of people in the Bible, Abraham, Moses, Joseph, David, you know, Methuselah, right? You can name a bunch of people. And you can be, eh, you know, somewhat wrong on some things, and, you know, it's not a huge deal. But if you're wrong on who Jesus is, that's a problem. Right. You're wrong on who Jesus is, then that is a serious problem. See, what often happens is these incorrect and often heretical claims are said in ways that many Christians don't know how to respond. Like I'll be able to like a lot of people, maybe you you, you can relate, right? You're kind of like, okay, I know that's not true, but I don't know how to answer that. I know it's not true, but I don't really know what to say. I don't know how do I respond to this. So what we and what we want to do is we want to understand every aspect of who Jesus is. 
Right? If I was to tell you that your eternity was dependent on your faith being in a biblical Jesus, then you would think that you would ca- take very a, a whole lot of care in understanding who this Jesus is. Right? Like if I was getting up here every week and teaching you a Jesus that was not a true and accurate Jesus, that, that you would want to know that, wouldn't you? What we're going to do is we're going to be, and we're not going to be able to answer all of these different things during this series, but I want to encourage you to make a habit in your life of reading the Gospels. Study them in depth. Get to know who Jesus is. Not just the things that he did, not just, okay, what is a good life application I can pull from this story, but man, get to know who Jesus is. I promise you it will radically change your walk with Christ. So with all this being said, We want to see a few things that we're going to see in just the first few verses here in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to see two things. One, we're going to see the claims of Mark, and two, we're going to see the ministry of John. So if you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 1. Bingo. Long intro, but we're good. All right. Mark chapter 1 says, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. Sounds delicious. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. All right, so the first thing we're going to see is we're going to see this. What are the claims of Mark? What are the claims that Mark is making right off the bat? First verse, in the beginning, oh, sorry, sorry, in the beginning, see, sorry. All right, first verse, right, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, if we're going we're to break this up, we're going to see a handful of things. But if I was to ask you, how would you explain Jesus? I'm going to say you, would have, you have a whole book. I'm going to give you a book, right? And you write down, you explain to me the life, the ministry, and the person of Jesus. How would you explain it? A lot of people would say, okay, well, he was a a first century Jewish uh, man who was a son of a carpenter, and he was a rabbi. Uh, Some other people say he was, you know, he had, you know, okay, he had some followers, or some people would say that he was a miracle worker, Right. Or other people say, man, he's a great example that we should uh, follow, uh, different things like that. But if I were to, if we were going to begin a story, how would you start? I think it's very telling how Mark opens it. Mark simply opens with this phrase, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. In this statement, Mark is making major claims about who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do in that one sentence. So the first claim that we have is this, is that the message of Jesus Christ is good news. See, the first thing that, G- that Mark tells us about the person, the message, and the life of Jesus is that it is the, what, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, the word gospel is, uh, in the Greek, euangelion, the word gospel literally means good news. Okay, So you, just, you could quite literally say that the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ That's the first thing that Mark is saying, is that the life, the ministry, and the person of Jesus can be summed up as this. It is good news. And when we consider the fact that the message that we have to share with people is good news, it should greatly impact the way that we view evangelism, shouldn't it? It's good news. 
It, is, it, it should greatly impact the way that we view, man, sharing the gospel with people. And we need to understand that when we are sharing the good news of Jesus with people, it isn't that we're trying to sell them on a product. Right? Because I think, back to the chair, okay? I think that here's how a lot of us look at it. We talk about, man, I need to share the gospel. You guys have heard me say that a bajillion times. If you've been here on Sunday mornings, you've heard Pastor Ethan talk about, man, we should, well, what do we do? Like, man, who's our neighbor? Man, share the gospel with our neighbors. And, and who is our neighbor? And blah, 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 and all these different things. And, man, that's so important. But here's the problem is that a lot of Christians approach evangelism like they're trying to sell a product to somebody that they know the person doesn't want. Right? And, 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 and I think that part of that is because we struggle to understand what it is we're presenting to the person. Right? That it's not a product to be sold to people. Right? And you could tell a lot of, you could tell, sorry, you could tell that this is the way that many people are trying to do this. Right? Because you could tell the way they package Jesus. Right? They kind of put, they put, you know, they, they, they package Jesus a certain way. They're like, all right, what is it that this person wants? And how can I package Jesus in a way that he solves the things that they want? Right, this is where you get prosperity gospel preaching, and this is where you get um, a lot of, you know, a lot of weird uh, teachings, right? You get a lot of different things. What is it that people do? They say, okay, Jesus is this, and you know what? Can Jesus benefit in certain ways? 100%, right? But what we do is we make those side effects of Jesus the main point of Jesus, right? And we try to sell people on Jesus, and what happens is a lot of people, what they do is they sound like a used car salesman, Right? Man, this Jesus thing, let me tell you about it. Let me tell you about all the things that Jesus can do for you. What, all right, what can Brown do for you, right? What company is that? What can Brown do for you? Make, make you feel old. What is it, Mr. J? UPS. UPS, right? And that's what we do, right? It's like, what can Jesus do for you? See, when we forget, here's the thing, when we forget that the gospel, the message of Jesus is good news, what happens is we focus more on the method of sharing the news than the news itself. We share on, okay, how is the message presented rather than what is the message? And this is, this is everywhere today, right? There are pastors and there are preachers who are like, these viral sensations, not because they are teaching truth, but because of the method in which they teach falsehood. And what happens is we have elevated the method over the message. We've elevated the method over the message. How do I know this? It's because when we talk about sharing the gospel with people, what is the number one answer that people give when they talk about why they don't share the gospel? It's because I don't know what to say. Okay, well, do you know the gospel? They say, well, yes. Okay, say that. Say that. Because here's, here's the thing I want, I want, you have to ask yourself. Where is the power to save? Right? Is the power to save in the method or is it in the message? It's in the message, right? It's in the good news. It's, it's in the fact that it doesn't matter. Here, I can get up here and I could just totally blow it, right? As long as the truth comes out, you know, but I could stutter all over this myself. I could try and quote, you know, I could try and say something's in the Bible and, and, and I totally misquote it and by accident or whatever. But as long as the gospel gets through, you know what, people get saved. But I can get up here and just beautifully and eloquently spout a bunch of nonsense and it make no difference. 
please hear me out, guys, that the power of the gospel is in the news of the gospel, not in the delivery of it. And, and we're approaching people that in that so we are approaching people that in that are in the midst of bad news. Right? When we're talking about sharing the gospel, what we're talking about is taking good news to people who are in the midst of bad news. We're presenting this good news for them. And here's the thing, if you're in this room, if you're in this room and you're in the midst of bad news, maybe your life is just falling apart. Right? Bless you. Your life's falling apart. Parents are arguing all the time or getting divorced or your friends want nothing to do with you or you've been, you know, like, I don't know, ex- uh, expelled from school or arrested or whatever it may be. Your life is just seemingly crumbling all around you and you're like, man, I am in the midst of this bad news. Let me tell you this, is that what you need is not the good news that the world promises but can never deliver. What you need is the good news of Jesus that he promises and always delivers. See, Jesus is not a product to be sold. He is the good news to be shared. And what is that good news? The good news is this, is that in the midst of our brokenness, God has made a way to mend our brokenness and to make us right with him. Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. See, the good news overcomes the bad news that we see every day. When I understand that the gospel, the message of Jesus, is not simply a product to be sold or bought, it's not, you know, it's not like a, it's not a pyramid scheme or it's not, um, wh- what's the thing um, where you have to sit in on a lecture and you can get like a, a thing for like a timeshare, right? It's not a timeshare that I sit through this and then I buy this and I get these. No, no. What we're talking about is that it is good news for people who are in the midst of bad news. See, I can have joy in the midst of my struggles. As scripture tells me, I have peace that passes all understanding. And it isn't because I have done anything. It's because of the good news that was done for me. So we see the life, the message, and the ministry of Jesus is one good news. Man, we are just a few words into the gospel of Mark. Right? Claim number two is that the good news of Jesus is based on the person of Jesus. See, right in this first verse, Mark is clear to identify who Jesus is. What does he say? He is what? The Christ, right? Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name, right? Christ is a title. So what is that? What is it? Now, the term Christ is a Greek translation of a Hebrew word, Messiah. So Christ and Messiah are the same thing. One is Hebrew, one is Greek. Christ is the Greek translation of the word Messiah, which means anointed one, right? It's a, he is the promised one that the Old Testament spoke about that would save his people from their sins. Now, if you were to uh, read this, if you, were, if you were to read this and say, man, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you were to have any understanding of the Old Testament scriptures, what you would understand is, man, this, is the, the, this title Messiah or this title Christ uh, would give you understanding of, it tells you what he came to do. I came, man, what he came to do, who he is. Man, we'll see that he's the one who will, based off the Old Testament, right, he will cleanse their people from their sins. He will suffer in their place, Isaiah 53, and he will usher in a new covenant for his people. Man, this Jesus, man, like, like he, it's not just a title, but, but man, I am learning about who he is and what he came to do. Right, and Jesus is saying, Mark is saying that this good news is founded in the fact of who he is. So Jesus is good news because he is the savior of his people, but also because he is God in the flesh. 
He is God in the flesh. Now, it's important when we consider the fact that Mark is most likely writing to a pagan audience. Right? You see that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, which is great. But in a culture that has warped and distorted the view of God, it is important to instruct them on who God is. It sounds a lot like our culture today, right? And if you just watch the Grammys, you'll see we live in a culture that has no idea who God is. No idea. Right? Just, man, like we, what our world needs is to understand, man, this is, Jesus is not just a good prophet. That he is God in the flesh. Now, it's important to see something here, right? Mark uses a common term to refer to Jesus. What is that term? The Son of God. Have you ever heard that? Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, good job, Steve. Right? Then he verifies this claim that he just made, and how does he verify this claim? Is that he quotes Old Testament scripture that speaks of the day where the Lord, God, right, would come to his people. And that passage is Isaiah chapter 40. Now, here's why I point this out, right? By, ref- by referring to Isaiah 40, Mark is saying that Jesus is both God that will come to his people, and right here he is saying that he is the son of God. See where I'm going with this, right? Now, ultimately, what Mark is doing is that this is significant because we see that in the first written accounts of the gospel of Jesus, the very first written account of the gospel of Jesus, right in the very first verse, we see the author describing Jesus with an understanding of a Trinitarian view of God. That he is both fully God and the Son. Right? And the reason I say this is that there will be, are people who will look at you and tell you that the doctrine of the Trinity did not come until the 4th century. That's what they'll say. And they'll say that the Bible never says the word Trinity. And I'll tell you that that, that is correct. The Bible does not say the word Trinity. But to deny that it is taught... It's just wrong, right? It's just wrong. So what we see is that Mark is making it clear here that there is one God who exists co-eternally in three persons, that he is both the Son in relation to the Father and the Holy Spirit and fully God at the same time. See, Mark, the apostles, and the early church saw Jesus as being the Son of God in relation to the Father and simultaneously God himself. And I mention this because there are a lot of people who are going to say a bunch of garbage that's just not true. It's not true. But here we see clearly Mark claiming that and claiming a true statement about God. Now, it is important for several reasons, because if you do not have a proper understanding of who Jesus is, then the good news is no longer good news. You with me? Because if you don't have a proper understanding that Jesus is God, then you have a pro- you have an understanding of a Jesus that cannot forgive you of your sins. Right? If Jesus is not God, he cannot forgive you of your sins. If he's not fully God, then how can he bear the payment of your sins? You understand that the the reason that the gospel of Jesus is good news is because of who he is. See, everything you need to understand about yourself, everything you need to understand about your friends, everything you need to understand about a lot of things is understood first when you understand just who God is. See, the only reason I am a sinner is because God is holy, right? See, if God wasn't holy, then me being a sinner isn't a problem. See, when we, when we begin to follow a Jesus that is different than the Jesus of Scripture, then we strip the gospel of its power to save. 
third claim, that the good news of Jesus does not start with the New Testament. It's interesting how Mark opens, right? He's telling of the, he's, he's basically, he opens his telling of the gospel, and Matthew begins, Matthew begins with the genealogy, right? Luke begins with the birth narrative of John the Baptist and the birth narrative of Jesus, and John begins with a theological prologue that focuses on, on the divine identity of Jesus. However, Mark begins straight away with, with the ministry of John the Baptist as a fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. Now, here's the question is when did God's plan for redemption begin, right? Huh? Okay. Close. Close, right? If we were to say when did God's plan for redemption begin, we have to understand that it's first communicated after the fall, right? Genesis 3.15, where God says to the serpent that the seed of the woman will, uh, will crush the head of the serpent, right? You will bruise his heel, or you will bruise his heel, he will crush your head, blah, 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 right? It's first communicated in Genesis 3. But we have to understand, if you go to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, what you'll see is that the plan for redemption was set in stone before the foundations of the world. That the gospel did not start when Jesus was born. The good news did not start with the virgin birth. It was originally established in the Old Testament. See, the gospel did not begin with the virgin birth or the preaching of John. It began in the heart of God before the foundations of the world were even set. And we should keep in mind that the Old Testament is not removed from the overall plan of God for redemption. That it's not one God in the Old Testament and a different God in the New Testament. That it is one God working all things for redemption. See, he says the beginning of the gospel, and then he refers to the book of Isaiah. And this is what we need to understand, is that a, a New Testament understanding of Jesus without an Old Testament understanding of Jesus is an incomplete understanding of Jesus. You with me? See, if you don't understand the Old Testament, you don't understand what Jesus came to do. And if you remove the New Testament, then you have no fulfillment of the Old Testament, right? That, that the Old Testament helps us understand the New, and the New Testament helps us understand the Old. That you can't remove one from the other. Again, this is important. Some of you are like, okay, what are we talking about right now? This is important because as we're going to continue through the book of Mark, we're going to get into more like, okay, applicational teachings and different things like that. You need to understand what is it that Mark claims right off the bat. All right, last thing I'm going to talk about is the ministry of John. Like I said, the gospel of Mark flies through things. You get to the temptation of Jesus in the, book, in the gospel of Mark, where, uh, sorry, in the gospel of Matthew, where does the temptation of Jesus show up? Matthew chapter 4. You get to the temptation of Jesus here halfway through chapter 1 of Mark. Right, we are, the Mark is flying through. Mark's going to reinforce who Jesus is by pointing to the ministry of John the Baptist as a fulfillment of Old Testament scripture, right? The coming of one who would prepare the way for the Lord. It's mentioned several times in the Old Testament, but namely in Isaiah 40 and in Malachi 3. So John had a very important job, and many Christians that have been in church for a while, you've heard that what? That John the Baptist came to do what? Prepare the way for Jesus, right? Came to prepare the way for the Messiah. You've heard this. Now, there's a lot that can be said about John the Baptist. There's a lot that can be said about John the Baptist. I can get up here and just tell you just loads of stuff about John the Baptist and how we should be like John, and we'll go, and everyone's happy and merry, right? But here's the question. 
right? Here's the thing. Like, all four Gospels talk about John the Baptist. All four of them do. So here's the question. Is what is Mark trying to communicate in his brief description of John the Baptist? Right? Not simply, okay, we're going to use this as a platform to jump off of into understanding who John the Baptist is. No. What is Mark seeking to communicate through, the, uh, through his description of the ministry of John the Baptist? Well, it's clear off the bat that Mark is wanting us to understand that the purpose of John's ministry was to prepare people for the coming of Jesus. Right? Very few Gospels make it as clear as the Gospel of Mark does, is that John's purpose was to prepare people for Jesus. That was his purpose. And what's interesting is that this is similar to our job as Christians, is it not? To prepare people for the day that they will stand face to face with God. I've heard somebody put it one time, this, uh, put it like this one time, that as, as a pastor, the job of a pastor is to prepare people to die. And that sounds pretty morbid, but it's the reality, right? I want you to understand that the job of a Christian is to prepare people for the day that they will stand face to face with their creator. That's our job. That's our role. That is what we do. And if we are not doing that, then we're just wasting our time and we're doing people a disservice. Because here's the deal. All of us will stand before the mercy seat of God. That's what scripture says. All of us, every single person in this room, from the youngest to the oldest, from the most broken to the ones that like to act like they have it all together, all of us will stand before God. And the question is this, is will we be ready when we stand before him? Will our loved ones be ready? We have a job to do, and that is to prepare people for Jesus, to prepare them for the day where they will stand face-to-face with Jesus, and that is what John is doing. He is preparing people for when Jesus will be revealed to them. John is preaching about a coming of Jesus, even though Jesus was technically already there. He just wasn't really revealed. See, people today may be aware of the reality of Jesus, but they don't know who Jesus is. They're not ready for Jesus. So I think it's important that we look at John's ministry as described here in Mark's gospel. I'm, I'm almost done. Hang with me. You're doing such a great job. We say, okay, what exactly did he do to prepare people for Jesus? We talk about as Christians, our job is to prepare people for Jesus. Man, what does that look like? Well, the first thing that we're going to see is this, is that John pointed people to Jesus and not to himself. In all accounts of John the Baptist's life, it was clear that he was not interested in the acclaim that he could receive for himself. If you read the Gospel of John, John 3.30, what we see is that um, there's a lot of people who were once following John the Baptist that are now following Jesus. And there are people who come to John the Baptist and say, hey, like, this Jesus guy is getting a lot of people. Like, you know, they're doing that. Like, should we stop stuff? Should we, should, like, should we do something? Right? Should we do something? You know, and, and what does John say? He says, no, 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 no. Like, and what he says, he says, he must increase, I must decrease. He must become greater, I must become less. See, I think the problem that a lot of Christians have, if we're honest, is that we want to share the gospel. We want to share Jesus with people, but we just get in the way too much. We get in the way too much. See, John made 
it was one thing that you could say about the gospel, about John's ministry, was that he did not get in the way of Jesus. Is that he had one purpose, and that was to build a claim for Jesus. He was not interested in what people thought of him. He was not interested. I mean, the man wore camel's hair and a leather belt, and he ate locusts and honey, and he lived out in the wilderness. That's not a good way to win friends and influence people, right? He's not wearing Gucci belts on stage, okay? Is that he is out in the wilderness, and this massive following is flocking to him. And what does he do? Is All he does is point people to Jesus. And how does he do this? One, he does this by emphasizing the fact that Jesus is worthy. Go to verse 7. It says, and he preached, saying, after me comes one who is mightier than I. So he's saying, look, don't get it twisted. Don't just look at me and think, no, what he's trying to say is, man, there is coming a day. There is coming somebody who is so much greater than I. Like, you may think that I'm great and I'm nothing compared to this guy. And what does he do? He says this, after me comes one who's mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now, that doesn't really, like, hit home for a lot of us, the significance of that statement. But it was understood in that day that a rabbi could ask his servant to do anything for him except one thing. There was one thing that you do not ask a servant to do, and that is to unstrap your sandals. That was lower than the lowest job of the lowest servant. And the reason is because people's, people's feet were nasty, right? I mean, it was like, and it was just, it was degrading. It was, it was just, it was embarrassing. Like, you don't ask people to do that. And John is saying, man, I'm not even worthy to do that. I'm not even worthy to do the job that is the lowest job of the lowest servant. I'm not even worthy to do what people would say I'm, I shouldn't ever have to be asked to do. It would be an honor for me to get to do that. But what we have to understand is John is not, it's not self-deprecating, right? John's not sitting here and being like, you know, I am a worm, watch me squirm. No, what he's talking about is this idea of, man, just how amazing Jesus is. Just how incredible Jesus is. And how does he do this? One, he talks about how worthy he is, but he talks about also the difference between him and Jesus. What does he say? Is he goes, I have baptized you with water, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, John is saying this, man. He's saying that, look, what I'm doing is great, but I can't do what Jesus can do for you. See, a lot of times, even in our, with our best motives, we try to be for people what only Jesus can be for them. And I think a lot of times it's because we truly care, right? Care about people. But I want you to understand that at some point, only Jesus can do for that person what that person needs. Right? This is especially true when it comes to relationships. I've been married this March. I'll be married five years, which is cool. Right? Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, you get a high five afterwards. Um, <laughs> I've been married for five years, and I have learned that there are times, and, and, and as a guy, my natural tendency, my guys in the room, you could probably agree with me, uh, is that my natural tendency is to try to fix problems, right? If there's a problem, I want to fix it. What I've learned is obviously, like, that's not necessarily what my wife wants all the time for me to fix it. She just wants me to listen which drives me crazy sometimes, right? Because I'm just like, you know, but that's not what she wants. But what I've learned is that there are times where, man, in my effort to try and fix it, 
I end up trying to be what only Jesus can be. You know? Or maybe you're in the room and you have friends and you see them wandering and straying from the Lord. They're doing things that are driving you crazy. They're doing things that break your heart. It's like, man, like we like we're in Sunday school for years together, or we did this together, we did that together. Like, yo, this is me. I when I was in school, people was like, man, I thought we were like shoot, right now, okay, like I have friends that I have not spoken to in forever because they want to go and be stupid. People in that were in my wedding that have just totally went off the rails. And I want to save them, right? I want to fix it. I want to, man, like, I want to, like, just, like, tie a rope around them and bring them back to Jesus. But I mean, what, here's what I need to know is that ultimately I can do what I can. I'll do what I can. But understand that ultimately that only Jesus can do what that person needs. And John is not trying to present himself as somebody who can save. I want you guys to know that I love you guys. As your student pastor, I want to be here for you. I want to be here at Central as long as the Lord allows me to be. We have a student ministry. If everyone was to show up on time, people like to take turns and it's crazy and stuff like that. But if everyone was to show up at the same time, we would have well over 200 students here. I want you to know that I want to be there for every single person. I wish I could, I wish I had the time to just go out to lunch with every single one of you. But you know what I've learned? I can't. I can't. No matter how badly I want to. And you know what I have you know what I have to rest on? Is not, nah, they're fine. What I have to rest on is understand, man, like, look, I can't be there all the time. But Jesus can. And some people look at their pastors, and not me, just me, but some people look at their pastors or their disciplers or whatever, and they place like God-sized expectations on them. I want you to know that. If you do that, you're going to be disappointed. Like John, right? Like I baptize you with water, but <laughs> Jesus does what only Jesus can do. I, I can speak to your ears, but Jesus can speak to your heart. See, John points people to Jesus and not to himself, and the last thing that John does, and this is not all long, so don't worry, the last thing that John does is that he tells them how to respond to Jesus. Now, it's not necessarily here in uh, chapter 1 of Mark, but other times there's one message that John the Baptist is preaching. What is it? Does anybody know? What is the one message that John the Baptist preaches? Go for it. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Man, so John... There's two things. John pointed people to Jesus, and he told them how they should respond to Jesus. You know what our job as Christians is? Point people to Jesus and tell them how to respond. It's not enough to tell people Jesus loves them. It's a good start, but that's not enough. It's not enough to have an amazing campus ministry where people get together and uh, they sing about Jesus, and they have a wonderful time, and then they leave, and nothing changes. I was a part of a lot of those. Life change happens, first and foremost. Life, cha- life change happens in relationships. You know that? Life change happens in relationships. This is great, what we're doing right now. 
If I was to ask you, this is kind of a sidebar, but I think it's important. If I was to ask you, what were the top five worship services that impacted your relationship with God? Or the top five sermons that you heard that impacted your relationship with God? You could probably give me a couple. If I was to ask you, what were the top five relationships that impacted your walk with God? And you could rattle them off. And why is that? It's because this has its place and it is very important, but life change happens in relationships. So if you come here and you just hear a sermon and you leave and there's no investment in the people around you, don't expect life change. Don't expect life change. But I will tell you this. The best way to tell someone how to respond to Jesus is when you have a relationship with them. Just walking around and telling people, get it together, does nothing. Build relationships with people. Get to know people. I heard somebody say one time when talking about, like, missionary work, and you go into a new city that you've never been in, and it, what, they, what they said is this. It's like, man, breathe in the city before you breathe out on it. Hear people before you expect them to hear you. And here's the thing. Remember, because we have good news to share, right? We have good news to share. Tell people how to respond. Now, here's the thing. There's only one way to respond to Jesus. One is humility. I guess I said one. I'm only one, two. Sorry. But really, I guess they're the same thing. Humility and repentance. Humility and repentance. You can't be full of the Spirit if you're too busy being full of yourself. That's not for me. I saw Dr. Tony Evans posted that on Instagram today, and I liked it. I liked it. It was good. And I was like, yo, I'm going to steal that. And I did. Now, you can't be full of the Spirit if you're too busy being full of yourself. Man, we need to humble ourselves before the Lord, understand who he is, and understand that, man, we need to humble ourselves before Jesus, and we need to constantly live in repentance. Does this make sense? It's like drinking from a fire hydrant tonight. I'm sorry. But I think it's important that we understand, man, one, who is it that Mark claims that Jesus is? And the second thing is, man, what is it that we're called to do with that information? It's not enough to know who Jesus is if you do nothing with it. Knowledge that stays in your hand, is that knowledge that stays in your head but never moves to your hands is useless knowledge. 